Well, good as our choir was before, I, I thought uh, with new facilities they'd be even better, and it appears that they are. So uh, we're proud of them and grateful for the marvelous contribution they make to our worship experience week after week after week. Some historians have called his reign the last ray in the sky before the night fell on the nation of Judah. Some have said during his kingship, the nation caught its second wind and began to go forward with strength and power, but the race was too far run and the surge came too late. We know that there was much to overcome for that young king. His grandfather, Manasseh, is called with the byline Manasseh the Wicked. He was Judah's worst king, and he reigned the longest, 55 years. During his reign, he succeeded in undoing all the good that had been done by any previous monarch. He desecrated even the temple of God, building pagan altars within it. He set up altars to Baal on every high place, including the Mount of Olives, a favorite. He even went so far as to encourage human sacrifice and led the way by sacrificing his own son in the Valley of Hinnom. And it was probably during his long reign that they installed drums around that Valley, and when you heard those drums beating, you knew they were beating to cover up the screams of the dying children. Manasseh, the wicked. Prophets say, Josephus rather said, he, he killed some prophets of God every single day. It was just uh, one of his pleasures to do in the prophets of God who cried against him. He filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. And although Kings knows nothing of his repentance, Chronicles makes a stab at it. This man who consulted mediums and wizards and encouraged astrologers and the worship of stars and seances and communication with the dead. All these things that we see a resurgence of in our time called abominations by the prophets of God. This man encouraged all of them and, and kings, the history book said he never repented. Chronicles said he had a brief repentance because he was carried with hooks to stand as a prisoner before the king of the Assyrians. And he repented then, but that was a repentance of expediency. Anybody would repent then and call on the name of the Lord. I mean, you remember that old verse about when the devil was sick, he decided he'd be a monk 
And then the devil got well and became a devil of a monk. It was a repentance of expediency. He, it was the thing he needed to do. And his life didn't give any indication that anything had happened. And when at last he died, Alman, his son, ascended to the throne. And incredibly, the Bible says he was even worse than his father. The only good thing was he didn't last as long as his father. He was so bad that the people assassinated him after two years. They couldn't stand him. Some of his servants wiped him out. And in his place, his son, Josiah, came to the throne when he was only eight years of age. He was a good king, even as a boy. He followed in the ways of David, the head of the line. He didn't turn to the right or to the left, the Bible tells us, and had begun to try to clean up his nation when some 18 years later, when he was, was 24 years of age or whatever, in his early 20s, he sent his secretary, Shaphan, to tell Hilkiah to pay off the masons, the carpenters, and the people who were refurbishing the temple. They had been receiving offerings from the people for years to get enough money in the treasury to have the restoration of the temple that had fallen into such disrepair under all those preceding monarchs. And in the process of repairing that temple, we don't know exactly how it happened. Someone said it was a mason trying to relocate a stone that had come loose. Discovered beneath that stone was a manuscript, a very ancient manuscript. And the manuscript contained the last chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Moses. It was a chapter detailing the judgments of God that would fall on people who serve false gods. And when, when the mason found it, he took it to the high priest, Hilkiah. Hilkiah gave it to the secretary of the king, and Shaphan read it to the king, and the king rent his clothing because he recognized it as the word of God. And thus, armed with the word of God, he began a reformation which stands as a pinnacle in the Holy Scriptures. It's called Josiah's Reform. He began to tear down all of those altars. He proceeded with vigor. He even went up into Samaria and Galilee, put to death some of the idolatrous priests. He restored the right worship in the temple. He reformed even the priesthood. He reinstituted the Passover, which the people no longer observed, and centralized it in the city of Jerusalem. It was a new day when the good king discovered the laws of God. The discovery or the rediscovery of the laws of God has always heralded a new era in the life of any nation. Of all the conquering Caesars, 
whoever thundered with their troops and horses through the streets of Rome, none ever made the impact of that little Jew who walked down the Appian Way one day bearing nothing but his chains and the Word of God in his heart. Think about what happened in Germany when Martin Luther rediscovered the Word, not in its watered-down version, but in its undiluted form, salvation by grace through faith. What happened in the Protestant world, in the Catholic world, happened all over. What happened in, what happened in England when a little Anglican priest by the name of John Wesley heard someone reading from the book of Romans and discovered for the first time the lively word of God? what has happened in nations when they have rediscovered the laws of God and begun to live by those practices and standards also happens in the lives of individuals. I remember the story of a man walking along the beach in South America who saw some trash up ahead. Actually, it was some leaves out of the Bible that had washed up on the beach. And this man who had no regard for God began to read those scraps of pages and discovered that his, his heart and his life was subsequently transformed. And he spent the rest of his days distributing the Bible to people who had no Bible. Oh, we don't need to talk about what the Bible means to individuals. How many times when our hearts have been burdened with grief and problems have we gone to those beautiful psalms and have discovered that when it comes to restoring the soul, the law of the Lord is perfect. Nothing restores the soul of God's people like the laws of God. And now the nation of Israel or rather of Judah, under good King Josiah, rediscovers the Word of God and is subsequently transformed. Why can't we learn the lesson of history? Why don't we read in the book of Judges how the people, when they turned to God, the nation uh, prospered and, and the people were happy and life was wonderful and then when they turned away from God, all of the, the plagues and the miseries and their enemies overcame them. And, and then they turned back to God and, and their nation would right itself. And over and over and over again we've read it. And, and somehow what makes us think we are immune, that we are not a part of history. That's our history in the nation of Israel. That's, that's the, the history of every nation just Follow them for thousands of years and you will see the same, that blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Why can't we learn from that? The Bible says, I set before my people a choice, life and death. Choose life then. Why, my people, why will you die? 
And why will you build your lives as though God doesn't exist? Why will you order your society as though God isn't important? Oh, I'm thankful for those third world nations that used to be so dependent on us, and now we're so dependent on them. I'm thankful at that Canterbury Conference I told you about, and some of us were talking yesterday. When delegates from the third world countries started waving their Bibles, when delegates from the Western world wanted to, to uh, ignore the standards of the Scriptures, they came waving their Bibles because they knew that that Bible had taken them out of darkness and brought them into the light. And they love the light. They don't want to step back into the darkness. How close we are always to the jungle. I read the other day, you did too, that, that there are some people out on the West Coast who haven't come under the influence of the gospel. They're on every coast and inland too. But here were some people, and this was dramatic, they, they still sacrifice animals in their worship. Spiritualism and animalism, you read about it. You know who's after them? The Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. They are insisting that if they're going to have the sacrificial system, they have to sharpen their knives. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? You don't have to look very far to know that, that the hope of civilization, civilization itself is bound up in the discovery and the rediscovery of the laws of God. Neglect and ignore them. And our nation will be like Jerusalem, white, clean as a dish. Why don't we learn? The other day, one of you handed me a story about some hunters, knowing I like stories like that. This had to do with some hunters who flew up into the far north to go elk hunting. They had a lot of luck, managed to bag six of those huge creatures. And they came back to the headquarters and told the pilot they wanted to take all of them home, and the pilot said, no way. The engine of this plane isn't strong enough. That's too much weight. We can't carry more than four Elks and the passengers. The horsepower is insufficient. The runway is too short. We just can't make it. They said, now, come on, man. Don't tell us that. Last year, we had six elk. We had the same horsepower. We had the same length runway. Now, we know if you'll try hard, you can make it. And so they persuaded him, and the pilot made a valiant effort, but it couldn't get over the first hill. They crashed. It didn't kill any of them, fortunately. They came staggering out of the wreckage, and one of them said to the other one, uh, where are we? And he said, I don't know. I think we're about two miles from where we crashed last year. How many times do we crash? How many times must we crash as a country and as an individual in our homes, in our personal lives? How many times do we have to go down before we realize we're carrying some baggage that we weren't designed to carry, that we have inadequate power, that we are incomplete without God? How many times... Do God's people have to suffer before they discover it? Here was Josiah, 
who brought the people, the nation of Israel, using God's law back closest to the time of David and any other king. And he did it in 31 years. He was Hezekiah's son, wasn't he? No, you say he was Ammon's son. He was Manasseh's grandson. No, he wasn't. He was Hezekiah's son. Hezekiah was his great-grandfather. Good king Hezekiah. And something happened that skipped two generations. Maybe we ought to give Jedidah credit, his mother. She doesn't even rate one sentence in the Bible dictionary. Don't we do that? We pick out one ancestor and we say, my great-grandfather was a Methodist preacher or my great-grandfather was this. We, we have a way of identifying ourselves with one particular ancestor and it isn't necessarily the one that, that fathered or mothered us. Not necessarily. Most times it is, but many times it isn't. We had an old saying where I come from about a rose and an onion patch. Josiah was a rose and an onion patch. Didn't have any reason to be there. He didn't have much example from his grandfather or his father, but all of a sudden here was a rose, and you couldn't explain it except by the power of God in his life. But suddenly, here was a rose, and it, it reminds me that when we get grown up, we can't blame our sins on our ancestry. People who do a sorry job of living sometimes say, my mother was an alcoholic. Oh, well then, okay. You know, but who are you now that you're all grown up? You know, W.D. Lasser says this is reality therapy. Recognizing where you come from and all the things you have to overcome, now under God, who are you going to be? Like that fellow from Texas who was real proud of his heritage, you remember, who was bragging to someone who didn't have much heritage uh, how his ancestors had, come, had been at the Alamo. And this fellow finally said to that proud Texan, said, Look, I, I don't, uh, I'm not interested in where your ancestors made their last stand. What I want to know is where are you going to make your last stand? That's the question that uh, Josiah reminds us of. He was not the son of, of uh, Manasseh. He was not the son of Ammon. He was a... He was a son of Hezekiah. He identified with someone he never knew before. Like the young man I know, I still know him, who was an angry, resentful young man. He had a mother who didn't want him and a father he never knew. Until one day that young man came to the realization, now in his 20s, that God was his heavenly father and he could be a part of God's family. And his life began to be transformed. Josiah was actually a better man than Hezekiah. You know, right after the word of God was found, you read all the story and you'll see that, that uh, Josiah said to Shaphan, the secretary, you take that, that book to 
a person of God and to a prophet, and you have them tell me if that is indeed the word of God. And Jeremiah was alive. Maybe he was an Anathoth. We don't know. Zephaniah was alive. We don't know where he was. But they took it to Huldah. Huldah, who was a, a woman, a prophetess. And she said, this is the word of God. And the rest of chapter 22 is given over to the words of the prophetess Huldah, thereby telling us that in the Old Testament at least, and in the New as well, spiritual eminence is not just reserved for the men. They took it to Huldah. And in her, in her prophecy, the woman said, Tell the king, this is the word of God. But tell the king, though Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, it will not happen during his lifetime. He'll never see it with his eyes. And what did Josiah say? Wow, that's a relief. That's what Hezekiah said when they told him. He said, I don't care about that as long as I'll have peace and security in my day. But here is a greater one. No wonder they said about Josiah, there was no king greater than he. No king. Well, David was greater, but he wasn't better than Josiah, not a better man than Josiah. Here is a man who knows that his best effort isn't going to be enough to save his nation, and yet he gives it his all. He goes right on with his reform, though he's flying in the face of what is going to be an ultimate disaster. He is good. Here's integrity. He is good even when being good doesn't pay off. Did you catch the Olympic game creed? They've had it since the 18th game. The creed says, the important thing in the Olympic game is not to win, but to participate. Just as in life, the important thing is not the triumph, but the struggle. The essential thing is to have fought well. In Josiah, God had one who fought well. Wish it could have had a happy ending. You know, Josiah went out and faced Necho, the pharaoh of Egypt, and was killed in battle. Didn't die there. He was brought back to die in peace in his home, just like Huldah had said he would. But now all of his reform came undone. Went back to the old ways under his son. And his grandson was the last king before the nation fell. Why did it come undone? Because a heavy-handed reform never lasts. Standards that run before the hearts of the people never last. Here was the king who commanded it, and it was done because of the authority of the kings, but the hearts of the people never caught up. It was like in the days of segregation when people used to say, you can't legislate morality. We hid a world of sin underneath that slogan. We never said you can legislate justice, however, and everybody ought to have justice. But it is true you cannot legislate morality. 
You can set up external standards, but if the internal, if religion never becomes internal, it won't last. That's why Jeremiah started out supporting Josiah. He said, the man is righteous, the man is good, he cares for the poor. You can read what he said about him. But then Jeremiah, who knew the Lord so well, said, but oh, religion has to be a thing in the heart. You can't build a good society using bad people for building blocks. You just can't do it. You need the standard, but then you need the spiritual principle and dynamic that makes the standard come alive in the lives of the people. Well, you know the name Torvaldson, the great sculptor. You know how there in his native Denmark at the cathedral, the Protestant cathedral, there are colossal statues lining the interior walls of that place. And all 12 of those uh, statues uh, look toward the impressive figure of Jesus before the massive altar. I was reminded of this the other day through an article by a friend of mine. It's a, it's a great statue of Jesus. But did you know when Torvaldson first set that statue in clay. He had Jesus with his hands raised in imperious leadership. Here is the king of the world, and he wanted everybody to bow down before him. But during the night, the arms, the clay arms drooped. And when the great sculptor came back to his studio, he was sick because he thought it was ruined. And then he realized as he looked more closely that now he looks like a pleading savior, no longer commanding the people, but inviting the people. And he fell on his knees and said, God Almighty corrected my statue. And he chiseled in its base the words, come unto me. God doesn't demand, he calls us. God invites us as an individual and as a nation. And in Josiah, we see what can happen in a nation when people hear the invitation of the Lord to live according to his laws. Amen. Our hymn of invitation is have firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord. Let's sing the first, second, and last stanzas. And let those of you who wish to come and build on the foundation I've been describing and be a part of this living, growing fellowship, would you come and stand before the congregation and let us receive you as members as we stand and sing the first, second, and last stanzas.
Dr. Henson, we are pleased to introduce these two persons who come by profession of faith, Mark and Sharon Harwell. I'm going to ask the congregation if you'll be seated, please. And I'll ask the Harwells to come stand before us. Patsy and Mark come by profession of faith, seeking uh, confirmation and admission into the body of Christ. And it is necessary in order to receive you into our fellowship to ask you if you repent of your sins and accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And if you do, say, I do. Do you pledge your eternal allegiance to his kingdom? And will you strive, according to the grace he gives you, to live always a Christian life? And if you will, say, I will. Will you diligently study the word of God and live according to its precepts and principles? And if you will, say, I will. Will you love and honor the church as the body of Christ and support it with your prayers, your presence, your gifts, and your service? And if you will, say, I will. Will you kneel, please? <laughs> 